Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today, we are honored and delighted to have, is Professor Neil Ferguson, one of the world's preeminent and most prolific historians. Professor Ferguson has written extensively on British, European, and U.S. history, as well as economic history and the history of money. He's the author of 16 books, including The Ascent of Money, Civilization, Colossus, Empire, and most recently, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. He's also produced several award-winning documentaries on these topics. Professor Ferguson, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Seth. It's a pleasure to be with you and to see some uh, familiar names on the uh, uh, the seminar list. Excellent. Well, first of all, I'm going to begin with a little bit of a confession. Um, 
I have not prepared for a podcast episode as much as I have prepared for this one. You've spent a lifetime writing so much. And I've been reading your work for almost 20 years now. I remember the first time I picked a book of yours. It was War, The War of the World. I picked it up in Heathrow. I had a flight to New York and I read it, uh, well, most of it on the flight. I couldn't sleep that flight. I just kept reading at it. It was really, really interesting. I've read so much of your work over the time you produced a mountain of uh, excellent work and there's so much we could talk about today and so many questions that I would like to discuss with you but I think uh, if I were to narrow it down the things that I'm most concerned about discussing are probably World War One history monetary history and of course Bitcoin which is really the, uh, the main topic that we discuss around these parts of the internet so uh, you've probably not discussed this uh, recently very much. It's probably one of your books that you've uh, received the least questions upon, but perhaps the book of yours that I find the most interesting is The Pity of War on World War I. I find that to be a very, very fascinating book, and it's uh, quite powerful in its conclusions because it lies against the conventional wisdom on World War I, in particular uh, you argue that war was not inevitable. And um, in general, I think one thing that I like about your work is that you don't argue that history was set in stone. History is not uh, overdetermined. Uh, it's like we're taking a walk in a garden with many paths and we just happen to have taken one of the paths and each path leads to many other uh, forks down the road and we just keep taking individual ones, but there's nothing... Uh, predetermined about most of these divergences. And I think uh, perhaps the most um, intriguing possibility is the idea that World War I was not inevitable, that World War I was not uh, something that had to happen, and it didn't have to happen in the way that it did, and it didn't have to leave the world with such a bloody and influential legacy that continues to uh, be with us really until today. So, uh, could you perhaps begin with giving us a little bit about your perspective about why the war uh, was not inevitable, why World War I was not inevitable? Well, it's true that I wrote that book quite a long time ago uh, in the 1990s, uh, but I've continued to think about uh, the question of the First World War. It was uh, an event that uh, dramatically altered the world. Uh, it, it really began the process of unraveling the European empire's dominance of the world, which had been established in the 18th and 19th uh, centuries. As a, as a boy, it was probably the first historical event that interested me. I can remember looking at A.J.P. Taylor's illustrated history of the war when I was a schoolboy and thinking uh, how I needed to understand better the events that had turned my grandfather, uh, John Ferguson's life, upside down uh, when he'd still been a teenager. The thing that frustrated me when I began studying history seriously at Oxford was the insistence of a really large body of scholarship, particularly German historiography, that the war was inevitable, that one could in fact trace its origins back to the unification of Germany. And uh, from that moment on, some historians seem to argue Europe was on a, an inevitable a collision course uh, destined for a conflagration. I began to have doubts about that uh, view of the past the more closely I studied uh, the origins of the war. Now, the origins of the First World War is one of those topics that 
uh, has generated a library full of of books. And for a period of time, I, I read a lot of those books. And the more I read about the events that led up to the outbreak of war in August 1914, the more it struck me that there were contingencies, the more alive I became to the counterfactuals, the alternative scenarios that might have played out. As you get deeper into historical research, as you pass from reading the textbook to the monograph to the archival research, I think you become more aware of these contingencies because as you read the letters of contemporaries, you see that they did not know in June of 1914 that there would be a global conflict that would last four and a quarter years and terminate the lives of more than 10 million uh, mostly young men. People did not really have a sense that that was a a base case scenario. I was writing the history of the Rothschild Bank at the same time as the Pity of War was getting written. I had a curious period when I was writing two books at once. The Rothschild's correspondence makes it clear that the outbreak of the war came as a surprise even to the best informed people. Uh, Sure, there had been small conflicts uh, prior to the outbreak of the war in the Balkans most obviously, but the sense that you could end up with a global conflict of such scale and duration uh, that really wasn't uh, something that that people were talking about in the summer of 1914. And it gradually dawned on me that the thing that was inevitable or was highly likely was a war between Germany and Russia, that that had become increasingly probable over time. And that in such a war, it was highly likely that Austria-Hungary would side with Germany and France with Russia. But what was not inevitable was British intervention. And indeed, Britain did not have any formal commitment to intervene in the case of such a war. So to bring my excessively long answer to conclusion, what I tried to show in The Pity of War was that Britain's decision for war was a highly contingent thing, driven uh, by a variety of domestic political calculations. But on the 2nd of August 1914, when the British cabinet met, to make their decision on whether or not to support France and therefore Russia, it was by no means clear before that meeting which way it would go. And indeed, if you'd asked the participants, they would probably have expected not to intervene because they they mostly thought Lloyd George, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, would be against uh, going to war. And in fact, he didn't take that position. Uh, partly for his own political ambition. It it ended up being a good call by Lloyd George because he ended up becoming prime minister during the war in succession to Herbert Asquith. Uh, But I tried to show that that was a meeting which could have gone a different way. But for, I think, Lloyd George's decision, uh, it's quite easy to imagine the Liberal government not intervening, perhaps falling from power, uh, but it would have taken time for a new government to be formed. And in that time, uh, it might uh, have been uh, too late to send the British Expeditionary Force. That was a crucial intervention. There's a scenario, in other words, a counterfactual scenario in a parallel universe in which the war happens in Europe, but it doesn't become a world war because Britain doesn't intervene. And it, it doesn't become a global war that lasts four and a half, a quarter years because Germany actually can win it if it's only fighting 
against France and Russia. There was a distinct probability that Germany would win that war. When you look at the casualties the French suffered in the first six months, they were absolutely devastating. Um, France would, and Russia would not have been able to keep the war going much beyond 1916 if Britain had not been on their side. And so you end up with a different kind of war. There's a great European war. It lasts about two years and Germany wins it. And that creates a completely different world from the world that we have known over the last century or so. Yeah, and generally, I think people um, think of this as being uh, unthinkably heretic. Like, how? What would? Uh, how dare you want to see Germany win the war? But it's World War One we're talking about here, not World War Two. And so it's a hugely different war. And so people's judgment is generally colored by thinking of Germany as being the Germany of World War II. But in fact, if Germany had won that war, as I think you argue quite convincingly, we would not have had the Germany of World War II. We would not have had the rise of Hitler. And I think the, the, the powerful argument you make, which is we, what we would have gotten out of that in 1916 or 1917 would have been similar to what the European look, Union looks like a century later. Well, I said that as a, a provocation at the time, and it certainly succeeded in provoking people. But I Argued that if you provoke the Germans as well into making it through, and <laughs> well, in a, a sense, I think that the argument's not quite as much of a provocation as I thought it was at the time. the The key point is that if if Britain had not intervened, if Britain had stayed out, then German war aims would have been different, and and a core German war aim would have been to create some kind of Central European Customs Union, which Germany would have dominated. Uh, it's not likely that Germany would have attempted to annex all or part of Belgium. That that would have been to risk br bringing Britain into the war. So you have to imagine more circumscribed German war aims. And you also have to remember that if you don't have a war that lasts until 1917-18, you don't have a Russian revolution. If you don't have a Russian revolution, then the whole history of Eastern Europe looks radically different and a great deal more benign. The Germany of, let's say, 1916 in this kind of scenario would still have been a parliamentary regime. That is to say, the Reichstag would still have been a powerful institution. It's not correct to say that Kaiser Wilhelm II was some kind of a dictator, or for that matter, that the uh, great general staff uh, ran a military dictatorship. It really didn't. Actually, Germany was more democratic than Britain at that time because the franchise was universal male suffrage. So from the vantage point of uh, not only uh, Germans, but also most people in continental Europe, and especially in Eastern Europe, uh, this would have been a far less disastrous outcome than what in fact happened, which was the Russian Revolution and the continuation of the war uh, in the form of the Russian Civil War after that revolution. That was a catastrophic event that led to an enormous number of, of deaths and established the uh, truly dreadful tyranny of the Bolsheviks over the Russian Empire. So in the counterfactual world where the war is limited, it doesn't last so long, it doesn't become global, you actually avoid the Russian Revolution. Uh, at least you avoid a Russian Revolution that puts the Bolsheviks in power, and that surely is a preferable world to the world that we got. Absolutely. I think the amount of human suffering that would have been uh, avoided without the rise of Hitler and the rise of the Bolsheviks would have been enormous. And Britain didn't really stand to gain much. I think this is the really tragic thing about it. It isn't as if Britain had a lot of interests uh, to follow there because in Britain's interest at that time was primarily focused on its empire rather than Europe. And so Germany could have gotten Europe and Britain could have gotten the empire and it would have probably saved a lot of bloodshed over the last hundred years or so, wouldn't you say? Well, 
the, the British uh, problem was that they had failed to choose. You, you could either make a continental commitment to preserve the existing order in Europe, but if you did that, you had to commit to a large army that would be sufficient to deter Germany from going to war. And you'd, you'd want to have formalized that security guarantee to France. The Liberal government was very hostile to the idea of conscription. And it didn't want to make a formal commitment to France or anybody else. And so what you ended up with was the worst possible combination. Uh, the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, privately said to the French that, that Britain would come in. Uh, but that wasn't actually something that he ever said publicly. And Britain didn't have a large army. And that was one reason that the German general staff didn't really worry about British intervention. They didn't think that the relatively small British expeditionary force would make that big a difference in the conflict on, on land. Of course, the British Navy was the biggest in the world, and the Germans underestimated the importance of the British Navy as a, a threat to their, their war economy. But from, from a British point of view, to intervene in this war without an army of any size meant that you had to build the army while fighting the Germans, who had the best army in the world at that point. And that led pretty quickly, if you think about it, to the catastrophe of the Battle of the Somme, when you had very hastily assembled and fairly hurriedly trained armies conducting offensive operations against uh, the heavily entrenched and extremely well-trained German army that, that produced the great military disasters of the middle part of the war. And, and you lost a, a colossal number of people. Remember, death toll in World War I was higher in relative terms for Britain than in World War II. And uh, and the cost, of course, not only in, in life, but also in treasure was colossal. Britain emerged from World War I with a much larger debt burden. And it was far harder to sustain the empire after 1918 with that debt burden, uh, because ultimately, you, you'd lost not only a, a very large part of the, the generation that fought the war, uh, but you had, I think, fundamentally saddled Britain with an unsustainable a debt burden. And, and although the British Empire kept on going, and indeed was still a going concern even after World War II, I think the roots of its decline and fall lay in its failure to, to choose. There was a, a counterfactual in which a unionist or conservative government committed to a continental strategy and raised an army of comparable size to the French or German army, but Britain chose not to do that. And, and I think that was a fatal mistake. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safeadeen.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. 
And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, and I think um, a really fascinating story which emerged in 2017, so a full century after this, which I start off uh, the fiat standard, my last book. I started off with that, uh, with the revelation of these documents. It was a, it was a study conducted by a man named John Osborne, who was working at the Bank of England in the 1920s. And he uh, wrote a study called Unpublished War History, the Bank of England, uh, that was published, uh, that, that was written for the Bank of England archive in the 1920s. And uh, it only emerged in 2017. Uh, somebody was digging into the attics of the uh, Bank of England. And uh, this this is new information that had never been, as far as I could tell, discussed before. And I, I think it was pretty clear that it was never discussed before, but it seems to support your conclusion very strongly because it revealed a couple of things that happened. The first one is that the Bank of England had actually made an announcement in 1915, which very few people had uh, seemed to have mentioned. And I think in, in the pity of war, you say that England had not suspended uh, the redemption of gold and they didn't formally suspend it, but they did sort of lean on their post offices in the banks to take the gold from people and only make payment, to receive payment in gold wherever is possible and to only make payment in paper. And uh, that, you know, generally now, you know, whenever you have problems with that, that means there's serious problems on the balance sheet. You don't get to that point unless you've got serious problems. And then uh, the other thing that was going on, which I found truly amazing, is that... Uh, the, the Financial Times had said that the war bond issue had been oversubscribed, that everybody had bought the bonds and the British public was very enthusiastic about going to the bond. In the pity of war, you said the British people weren't enthusiastic about the war. But uh, it turns out that uh, all the British people had only bought a third of those bonds and two thirds of those bonds were bought by two employees of the Bank of England. Um, with a credit line from the Bank of England, um, there wasn't, they didn't buy it with their own cash. They bought it with a credit line from the Bank of England. And then the Financial Times reported uh, that the uh, issuance was oversubscribed. And then one of our uh, mutual admiration, uh, a man who has our mutual admiration, John Maynard Keynes, who was at the Treasury at that time, he wrote to the Bank of England uh, commending them for what he called a masterly manipulation wherein they made the public believe that the public had bought the bonds, when in fact the public had only bought a third of the bonds. Now, when you, when you add this kind of evidence to the stuff that's in the pity of war, and this is really, I'll confess, like this is what I really wanted to talk to you about. I wonder what you think about it, because it seems to support your views on the pity of war very uh, conclusively. Yeah, the British people weren't uh, involved. And if we had slightly less dishonest people in charge of the central bank and the treasury at that time, and the Bank of England and the uh, treasury at that time, they wouldn't have been able to pull it off and they wouldn't have been able to mobilize for the war. Well, I haven't uh, read those uh, documents that you you refer to, and uh, so I should be careful about what I say. That the key thing to remember is that in the minds of officials at the Treasury and the Bank of England, uh, there was a perfectly familiar precedent, or at least familiar to those who were historically minded, because it lay 
a hundred years or so in the past. And that was the way in which Britain had fought France uh, during the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. At that time, uh, the uh, suspension of convertibility into gold had been the order of the day. At that time, uh, the the Bank of England had played the role of help meet uh, to the Treasury. It was well understood by British civil servants that in time of war, you suspended the rules that applied in peacetime. It was also understood that that would have inflationary consequences, uh, but that was the the nature of war finance. Uh, This was something that Keynes was very familiar with and had thought a good deal about, continued to think about the same issue in World War II. Uh, But I don't think it was seen as, as dishonesty. I think it was seen as the exceptional things you do in time of war. Moritz Schillerich, I, and uh, Paul Schmelzing are working on a paper, which hasn't yet been published, uh, on central bank balance sheets uh, over the long run, based on Paul's exceptional work uh, in his doctoral dissertation on uh, debt markets over the long run. And what's clear is that for central bank balance sheets to expand in time of war was quite normal. Uh, And indeed, you can see that in most of the big conflicts, not only the Bank of England, but other central banks played a significant role uh, in war financing. Uh, so what happened uh, in, in World War I wasn't without precedent. It was really fairly normal. The thing that was new was the scale of the war, which turned out to be larger because of the new technologies of the industrial era. Uh, and, and, and so it was the same kind of methods, but being applied to a much larger scale conflict uh, than, say, even in the time of, of Napoleon. So that was, I think that's the way to think about this. Uh, and, and Keynes knew full well that there would be all kinds of, of challenges, particularly as Britain began to rely on the United States uh, as a source of, of supply and of credit. Uh, the, the problem for Britain uh, in the 20th century was that it couldn't win its world wars without U.S. financial and ultimately military support. Uh, so, yeah, I think one can see that uh, in 1914, 1918, the, the problems of war finance very quickly manifested themselves. I'll say one last thing uh, about war enthusiasm. Uh, th- there's a kind of legend about the popularity of, of World War I, which I try to refute uh, in The Pity of War. Not surprisingly, most people uh, were in fact quite unnerved at the prospects of a general European war, especially as it involved the mobilization uh, of very large uh, proportions of the male population. When it comes to war bonds, uh, it's actually quite a risky thing to invest in, in the sense that if you invest in a war bond and your country loses the war, you're likely to be wiped out. Just ask Russians who, who invested in Tsarist bonds, uh, which ended up being defaulted on entirely by the Bolsheviks. Uh, so war bonds have to pay some kind of premium to attract investors. The problem for uh, Britain and Germany, indeed all the competence, was you didn't really want to pay the big premium that you would need to pay to get massive public subscription. And that's one of the reasons why you had to get central banks uh, involved. Uh, That was even more true in Germany. And the Germans had the additional problem that they couldn't actually sell 
German war bonds uh, in New York the way the British and uh, and their allies were able to. Yeah, and I think um, what is uh, apparent from that uh, study by John Osborne, which I mentioned, is uh, so throughout the war, the Bank of England continued to collect the gold from the post offices and the banks of the country and uh, give the people the papers, which of course was translated to price rises, even though they hadn't formally suspended the gold standard because that would have been unspeakably unpopular at that time. And I think if they said, we need to fight this war and we need to get off the gold standard, then we need to revalue the currency. That would have been a non-starter. I think any government would have lost the trust of the parliament and or parliament would have been uh, hung and they would have had the re-election. This was, this was a complete non-starter. So the way that they managed to do it was to formally continue to maintain the same rate of uh, exchange between gold and sterling, but collect the gold and then print more and more paper money in people's hands and then uh, blame the rise in prices on um, the war. But what becomes really interesting is from this study uh, is that uh, they confiscated 14.7 million ounces of gold, which is about 455 tons of gold, which is an enormous amount, most of which was sent to the United States to finance the credit. So this is really the roots of British dependence on the US. And it is effectively, I mean, with this gigantic movement of gold, which is larger than Britain's gold reserves today, because today's gold reserves in Britain are around, I think, 290 tons. So this is much larger than the gold that they have left today. With that movement of money to the US in order to finance credit line, I think this was, um, you know, as goes gold, as goes power. And, and it was this that was uh, really the UK giving up its global power in order to finance this war that uh, arguably they shouldn't have been taken part in. Well, yes and no. I think having made the decision to intervene, uh, obviously Britain had to win and it, it couldn't win without uh, American supplies and ultimately American intervention. You could argue that in order to achieve those things, uh, Britain played uh, a, an absolutely masterly game. Uh, there were plenty of pro-German and anti-British people in the United States in 1914. It was not a foregone conclusion that the United States would end up taking Britain's side. In fact, it was about the hardest thing politically that Woodrow Wilson ever had to, to do. Uh, but Britain did a lot to help. Uh, it did a lot to help, for example, by intercepting German cable traffic uh, and making sure that the United States uh, saw the Zimmermann telegram, which was an inf- important part uh, of making the case for war uh, against Germany in, in the United States. I, I would also argue that if you if you think about what Britain got for its money, got for its gold, it was a it was a pretty good deal because the United States uh, acted as quote the arsenal of democracy. That that's a World War II phrase, but it supplied a treme- tremendous amount of the uh, the ammunition and other supplies that the uh, the British and French and Russian armies needed. Because what Britain did was it was essentially a conduit for American funding to reach less creditworthy uh, members of the Entente, uh, France and, and, and Russia. And, and that w- worked out well in the sense that Germany was defeated uh, ultimately, despite the fact that the Germans beat the Russians, caused the collapse of Tsarism in 1917, despite the fact that the French had more or less ceased to be 
uh, viable uh, militarily by 1917, uh, Britain ends up winning World War I, and Germany suffers a disastrous collapse. At the point of victory, uh, at the end of 1918, you would be, I think, forgiven for saying that Britain had managed to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and had overcome the weakness that it had in 1914, namely that it didn't have a large uh, land army. By 1918, Britain did have a la large land army. It also had an extremely well-equipped land army that was able to defeat the German army in the field emphatically, and partly it was able to do so because of American support. So I think if one thinks of it that way, and remember the ultimate goal was, was victory after August the 2nd, 1914, then I think Britain achieved that. And at the end of World War I, the striking thing is that Britain's empire is still entirely intact and indeed grows in size because Britain's able to acquire uh, German uh, colonies and Turkish possessions with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. The United States isn't actually the dominant power in the world in 1918, not least because Wilson cannot carry the US Senate with him. He cannot get ratification for the peace and the League of Nations. So in the end, American power is only temporary, then retreats into a period of isolation, leaving Britain and to a lesser extent France dominant. So I don't think one wants to read British decline too far back into the story. I argue that Britain has a pretty good shot at re-establishing its dominance. The problems come in the 1930s when a much more dangerous Germany emerges under Hitler, and once again, Britain fails to deter that Germany from going to war. There, I think, uh, one can see the seeds of decline much more clearly than in 1914-18. Yeah, although I think, I, I think those are interrelated in the sense that, on the one hand, the rise of Hitler came about because of the... Uh, essentially Pyrrhic victory of uh, World War One, which was to get you then bogged down in World War Two, And also, on the other hand, because of the financial problems which were to carry on. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, the Great Depression itself was essentially a consequence of World War One finance. In fact, if you, I don't know how familiar you are with the work of Marty Rothbard, the Austrian school economist, but he presents the chain of events that led to the Great Depression as having been inextricably linked to World War One. So it was the monetary expansion in World War One that had led to the problem that the Britain, British had in the 1920s, which was that they couldn't go back to the gold standard at the prevalent pre-war rate, which had been around for a couple of centuries. And because they didn't have enough gold, they had printed too much money and they wanted to square the circle of trying to go back on this. And the way that they tried to do that was to try and get the uh, British and the French to print more and more money, essentially, to stop the bleeding of gold from Britain. Because by uh, undervaluing gold in Britain, they caused a, uh, an exodus of gold from Britain to the US. And so, to a large extent, I think the uh, inflationary monetary policy of the 1920s that led to the Great Depression had its roots in Britain trying to export its inflation to the US to try and manage and stem the exit of money. Um, all of which is kind of my very elaborate way of saying <laughs> none of this would have been a problem if they all stayed on the gold standard, <laughs> wouldn't you say? Well, I have a slightly different view because I think the, the gold standard after World War I was extremely hard to resurrect. Here I would 
strongly recommend Barry Eichengreen's uh, wonderful book, Golden Fetters, which you probably don't like. But, but the point Eichengreen makes is that to try to restore the gold standard after the events of 1914-18 was a doomed enterprise. And if you remember that the reasons that, that, that he gives include not only the enormous imbalances that the war had created in monetary and, and, and fiscal terms, but also the fact that you had changed the social order of uh, the industrial world. You had, uh, you had greatly empowered trade unions. You had widened the franchise and created more democratic systems. And so it wasn't re- really a, a viable project to take uh, the late 19th, early 20th century system and, and resurrect it, unless you had, had completely rethought the, the exchange rates, which certainly uh, British politicians and, and economists were mostly disinclined to do. And this is where Keynes comes in, uh, as well as, as Eichengreen. Keynes's critique throughout the, the 20s uh, was that it wasn't rational to try to go back to the, the pre-1914 parity, the $4.86 exchange rate. And I think most economic historians since Keynes have tended to agree. I used to teach this stuff at Oxford back in the 1990s. And so you're asking me to dredge deep into uh, the river of my memory. But I recollect debates with undergraduates about whether there were alternatives open to Churchill, who was, of course, Chancellor of the Exchequer at that time, or uh, alternatives that other governments could have adopted. The Eichengreen book essentially argues that the, the, the economic shocks of the 20s and 30s were made worse by adherence to gold. And escape recovery was made possible by breaking gold pegs. Uh, the obvious example is Britain in, in 1931. France, which clings on longer, has a much worse experience. Britain has a very good time in the 1930s in comparative perspective. It has a much less severe depression than the United States or, or Germany. And so I think one could make a, a slightly different argument. Uh, and I think that's implicit in Eichengreen, in Eichengreen's book that Actually, after you've gone through something like World War One, the easiest way to cope with all the imbalances is to have something more like uh, floating exchange rates, uh, rather than try to resurrect a system of fixed exchange rates, which is all the gold standard really was. I mean, gold standard is just, a, let's remember, it's something that's kind of made up in Britain and only largely adopted in the course of the 19th century particularly towards the end of the 19th century, when it becomes very convenient just to effectively to peg to sterling, uh, because sterling's the dominant global currency and trade is denominated in sterling to a very large extent. Uh, and that, that process whereby the world becomes a, a gold standard world is also a, a, a process whereby the world becomes dominated by the British Empire, dominated by uh, the British pound. It was It was probably a doomed venture to try and put that Humpty Dumpty back together again after the great fall of 1914-18. So my view of, of the Depression is a different one from Rothbard's uh, and much closer to uh, the work of, of Eichengreen or, or my old friend Harold James, uh, whose work I also highly recommend to everybody who's listening. 
Yeah, I mean, if I were, if I may offer the uh, counter to that, I think the obviously the problem is trying to get back on the gold standard at the pre-war rate after all of the inflation that has taken place. This is this is where I think everybody agrees. Yeah, clearly, if you're trying to get back at the same exchange rate between gold and sterling that was prevalent in 1913, and you try to do that in 1920 or 25 or 1930. You're going to have uh, you're going to have massive economic problems. You're going to need price controls. You're going to need wage controls. You're going to have angry unions. It's going to be deeply politically unpopular, and this was the problem that they had. But of course, the solution to that, I think, here, you know, we we see the beginning of the two ways of approaching economic problems, where in the Keynesian problem is, oh, look, we have a problem. Let's stop worrying about how we got here and just um, do the short-term thing that uh, gets us out of trouble now versus the more Austrian perspective, which is, you know, you sh- this is why you shouldn't have gone into the war. This is why you shouldn't have gotten into inflation in the first place. And there's no, you can't wish it away. Like you can't just wish for uh, the inflation to go away. You already created all of that money the money supply has been increased. So the only honest thing to do would have been to go back to a gold standard, but a new rate, you know, a 10, 20, 30, maybe 40% evaluation of the British against gold would have just gotten us back on a gold standard. And I think, uh, you know, the case against the gold standard ultimately is, I, I think the flaw here is that essentially Britain broke the gold standard and then complained that it didn't work. It was working quite fine before they did all of these shenanigans to finance World War One, If they hadn't done that, it would have been fine. And I don't think, I don't quite agree with you that it's a British thing. It is a British thing in its current incarnation, but the idea of using money as gold is something that has existed for thousands of years for very good reasons, because gold's supply does not increase uh, quickly. So therefore, it, uh, it is the thing that ends up being the best store of value. So it's the thing that ends up holding on to economic value the most. So... Uh, my case would be that if they'd stopped the inflationism, um, revalued the currencies in terms of gold, that would have caused a very deeply politically unpopular and painful recession for a few months, similar to what the U.S. had in 1920. You know, people forget that the U.S. went back on the gold standard in 1921. They had a recession, which lasted six months. It was nothing like the Great Depression because they went back on gold. And so they had the booming 20s. But then it was the inflationism of the 1920s because Britain hadn't done the same, because Britain went on a gold bullion standard. That, I think, um, exacerbated the problems for the U.S. And then Essentially, I think the EU, Britain kicked the inflation problem across the pond for the US to deal with. And then both of them had to go off the gold standard in the 1930s. And again, from the Austrian perspective, this is uh, things have just been going downhill ever since. Um, but I, I can understand how, you know, people like Barry Eichen Green, the, the winners of the history and the winners of the economic department wars, at least, view this as a winning, uh, view this as a good thing because, I mean, uh, the, the, the Keynes dominated the economics departments and they get paid from that uh, printed money. <laughs> well, uh, you know, say if I'm not, I'm not an economist, I'm, I'm a historian and I, I've never been inclined to take sides in the, in the battles between uh, Keynes and his, his critics, because I don't think that, that, that really everything can be resolved into a simple a dichotomy between the Keynesians and the Austrians. You say everything went downhill, but of course, from the vantage point of uh, of, of history, that's not true. In truth, the gold standard uh, w- was something that 
certainly was associated with Britain's imperial heyday. Uh, I want to re-emphasize that it only really became an international system of fixed exchange rates uh, based on sterling's uh, gold peg in the later 19th century. And even then, it didn't become entirely global because there were still some silver-based economies like China's. The period after 1918 was characterized by considerable economic volatility. Uh, and that was partly due uh, to countries like Britain trying to return to uh, the gold standard at no longer realistic uh, rates. But, but it was also caused by countries that had abandoned gold uh, and pursued inflationary policies all the way to hyperinflation like Germany. And then you had the countries like, like France that didn't attempt to restore pre-war parity. If one looks at the 1920s and 1930s, uh, the striking feature is the the economic volatility of those two decades. You have bouts of extreme uh, deflation and unemployment in the US and the UK. You have extreme inflation in Germany, in Austria, in Hungary, uh, in Russia. And then in the 1930s, you have the greatest contraction in economic output in the history of the United States and, and, and of Germany, two of the most important economies in the world at that point. Then let's look at what comes next, because it certainly can't be described as all downhill. Uh, the period after World War II is characterized by an extraordinary boom in uh, the, the Western developed world that's, uh, that's of, of course, shared by uh, Japan and later by some other Asian economies. The United States, which by 1945 was by far the largest econ economy in the world, achieves extraordinarily sustained growth right down really until the 1970s. And all of that happens under the system of the Bretton Woods system, which wasn't really a gold standard. It was a, a, a dollar standard. But the dollar was pegged to gold at that point. It was fixed at $35 and it was redeemable, at least for central banks, which was you know, workable for a while, but it wasn't very sustainable. And then in 1971, right. it had to be removed and that's when it goes downhill. But remember, in all of that time, other countries are adjusting their pegs to the dollar on a regular basis. The Deutschmark's being revalued re regularly. The pound is being devalued. And so it wasn't like the gold standard because there were quite re re regular changes in, in, in the, in the dollar exchange rates of the, of the major currencies. And, and that was, I think, a, a pretty successful uh, system. Of course, it had its problems. Nothing is ever static in history. And by, uh, the late 1960s, it was obvious that, that the system was no longer sustainable because it wasn't really in the interests of the United States, uh, which found itself increasingly under pressure, particularly from Japanese exports. So you end up, you end up with the Nixon shock. The 1970s looked pretty bad at the time because of the inflation that, that was greatly exacerbated by the, uh, Arab OPEC countries, uh, oil, uh, price hikes. But again, the United States came through that very difficult decade and emerged in the 1980s as entirely dominant, dominant uh, enough to win the Cold War without a, a showdown with the Soviet Union. And when one looks back at how the system of flexible exchange rates performed, because by that time, the world really was in an era of flexible exchange rates. I think it was pretty successful. And my mistake, if I had to pick a mistake that was made, was the decision that Europeans took to throw away exchange rate flexibility and create a single European currency. That, that decision in the 1990s, I think, was a mistake because I don't think that Europe needed a single currency 
but that's a whole other debate that we could have. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's uh, probably a debate for another day. I have uh, one other uh, theory on World War One. I'm wondering if you, what your thoughts are on this. This is kind of out there. Looking at exchange rates during World War One, German and Austrian exchange rates declined the most during that period. In fact, if we look, uh, this is a table from the Bitcoin standard. You can see it here. This was the devaluation of the national currencies against the Swiss franc. And you see that the Austrian and German currencies were devalued, depreciated the most, 48.9% and 68.9%. I'm wondering if you think just merely the fact that they were much closer to Switzerland than Britain and the US might have been a decisive factor just because German people could easily go and exchange their money into Swiss francs and therefore put more pressure on the uh, British on the German on the German money and the uh, Austrian uh, currency versus the Americans and the British who were stuck holding to their government's inflationary bags. What do you think? Well, as I said, it's a long time since I worked on this, but I'm pretty sure that if that table covers the period of uh, of the entire war down to November of, of 1918, then what, what you capture there is, to a large extent, the consequences of, of defeat. That, that's to say the depreciation is, is most pronounced in the later phase of the war. Uh, this, right. this is a chart that shows it here. This is, uh, starts off in June 1914. And so it ends here in uh, November 1918, yeah. around here. So, so investors remember the controls of 1914-18 were never completely watertight. Uh, the governments didn't have the capacity to enforce all the regulations that they that they they in, introduced. I know this from my own research on the Hamburg economy in the 1914 to 23 period. So, you had all these regulations that were designed to avoid people uh, uh, acquiring foreign uh, currency, but they weren't. They couldn't be entirely uh, enforced, and so what goes on is that, that there's quite a lot of illicit black market uh, uh, trading in foreign currencies. The key is that your incentive to get out of Austrian or German currencies is clearly uh, connected to your expectations of inflation in those countries, and and of course your expectations of of the ultimate military outcome. Because losing a war is historically really very bad for your currency and it's really bad for your, for your economy. So part of what's going on there is, is expectations of the outcome of the war. But, but I think what's interesting about the story is that you, know, you, can, you can do similar charts for earlier periods in history, uh, including the 1790s and, and the early 1800s. And that's kind of how war economics tends to work. In a war, you have to pay for a great deal of non-productive activity, the, the getting people, uh, mostly men, to go and kill one another, destroy one another's armies. So you have to raise that money. Uh, the way you do that is you issue bonds, uh, and when the public won't provide enough cash through that channel, then you have to issue short-term instruments. You start to monetize in order to make the payments to the soldiers, to the arms manufacturers. That's absolutely the characteristic pattern of, of, of war finance. It is inflation. It's inherently inflationary because you're essentially expanding the money supply and you're engaged in destruction with the expenditure. This is not an unfamiliar pattern. You can find the same thing going on in the wars 
of the 16th and 17th century too. And, and so I think it's just inherent in the nature of war that it's inflationary. And if you don't believe me, ask Ukrainians, because they're in exactly this situation today. In order to sustain the war effort against Russia, they've had to issue a very large amount uh, of short-term paper. It's highly inflationary. I don't know what the current inflation rate is. I was last there and back in September. It was pretty high then. This is how war finance functions. And it, it shouldn't surprise us to find that the currencies of combatant countries depreciated in 1940, 1980, nor should it surprise us that the currencies depreciated the most of those countries that did not have US financial support because that's what the central powers lacked. The central powers had no sugar daddy. Uh, the Entente powers had a sugar daddy, Uncle Sam. And that's that's why there's this this difference in, in depreciation. Okay, one more question. Um, you've also written a fascinating history of uh, the Rothschilds family. You've also written a fascinating history of the Rothschilds family. And at that point, you know, 1917, it was a pretty dark point in uh, the war for Britain. And uh, during the war, they issued the Balfour Declaration, which is something that is of special interest for me because I'm Palestinian. So I'm wondering, do you think the financial situation of Britain had anything to do with the issuing of the Balfour Declaration at that time? Or do you think it was unrelated? I don't think it was that closely related. But the goal at that point in the war was to try to prevent the Germans from mobilizing any possible international support. And so the Balfour Declaration was in some ways a preemptive move to make sure that Zionist sympathies were with, with Britain and not with, with Germany. Uh, I covered this in, in the Rothschild history, showing that not all members of the family were Zionists. In fact, there was quite a split in the family on, on, that, on that issue. But the motivation for the British government was, was really to prevent the Germans trying to uh, make a similar move. Um, you have to remember that, that 1917 is a time when the wars reached a some, something of a stalemate. And indeed, there's a risk that, that the Germans could win it because Russia's falling apart. So what do you do? You run around trying to secure the support that you can get. The most important, of course, is the US. Getting the US into the war is the absolute key for Britain, uh, which by that time owns the United States a lot of, mo a lot of money. But there are, other, there are other smaller interest groups that you want to sew up. But yeah, this is all, this is time travel for me. I haven't written about this uh, in, uh, in, well, more than, more than 25 years. Yeah, well, you know, your books, you write them and then they're out there and people keep reading them all the time. So I should reread them myself. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think they're, they're a great read. I, I keep reading more and more of your books. Um, all right. So switching on to the topic of money specifically and the ascent of money and moving on to Bitcoin. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin? Um, I, I've heard you speak about it over the last couple of years. You've gone from being a skeptic to being perhaps not an enthusiast, but at least uh, an appreciator of the value proposition. Um, how have your thoughts evolved and where do you stand now? Well, I, I updated the Ascent of Money a few years ago on its 10th anniversary and included a, a chapter that covered the advent of, of, of Bitcoin and indeed Ethereum. That was back in, in 2018. The Ascent of Money was originally published the same year of the Satoshi paper. Uh, and so the original Ascent of Money couldn't really talk about uh, Bitcoin, because uh, I think the two things came into existence, the book and the and the idea of Bitcoin at the same moment. 
When I wrote it up in, in 2018 for that 10th anniversary edition, my argument was that there clearly was going to be a transformation in the nature of money associated with the advent of the internet, that it was unlikely that we would spend another 10 years paying for things by typing in credit card numbers on random websites, that there ought to be some change in the nature of, of money and payments, and that that would gradually render certain forms of, of payment obsolete, banknotes, coins. I went into a bank yesterday to convert a whole lot of coins that my son had saved uh, into bank money. And uh, it was a reminder to me how far that financial revolution has gone, that it felt kind of comical to ask a bank teller uh, to count a whole bunch of quarters, nickels, dimes, and pennies to figure out how much my son had saved. So that, that financial revolution is, is an unstoppable thing, and it, it will consign checks to oblivion too. The question is, you know, what will the new financial system look like? And in The Ascend of Money, I said, well, there are a bunch of contenders, and Bitcoin is, is one of them. Uh, then the, the Ethereum cryptocurrencies and all the different things decentralized finance based on top of that. But there are other things too, I mean, of which the centralized Chinese payment platforms are, I think, extremely important. There are just lots and lots of new ways of paying for things. I think Bitcoin so far as a payments system has not been overwhelmingly successful as a version of gold, as a, uh, a an option on digital gold, as my friend Matt McLennan uh, called it, it's been it's been more successful, and so the argument of the the ascent of, of money, volume two or second edition, was adoption of Bitcoin as an option on digital gold will determine its price. If and I forget the exact numbers, but there were roughly these: if 02 percent of the portfolios of all the millionaires in the world are held in the form of Bitcoin, then the price would be around $15,000. If, if it's more like 1%, then the price will be somewhere uh, more like sixty or $70,000, roughly that. So I basically asked, what if every millionaire decides to hold some percentage of his or her portfolio as Bitcoin, what will the price be? And that was, I think, correct analysis then, that adoption would be the key to the price. What subsequently happened in 2020 and in 2021 was that adoption became dominated by leverage uh, and speculation. And exchanges facilitated this so that we went from an option on digital gold to something that was a, essentially a speculative object, along with all the other cryptocurrencies. And that speculation was propelled by extremely easily available margin credit. I think if one were to do another edition of The Ascent of Money today, it would say that out of the pandemic and the zero interest rate policies the quantitative easing infinity of 2020, there came a bubble. And that bubble uh, meant that the credit drove the price. 
And when the monetary conditions tightened, as they did in 2021, inevitably the bubble burst, because that's what bubbles do. When the monetary conditions get tougher, the most exposed, most leveraged borrower on uh, margin gets destroyed. So we're watching the the, the, the gradual, and it's, it's kind of slower process than you'd expect, the gradual exposure of all the, the, not only speculation, but the illegal activities that flourished during the bubble. And when people talk about a crypto winter, what they're describing is that process. I ask myself if it's actually a crypto ice age because so much reputational damage has been done not just by Sam Bankman-Fried, but by, I think, an entire ecosystem of speculative and fraudulent players. And so I, I have to say my, my, my outlook is somewhat bleak because it's not obvious to me why there would be a renewal of adoption in the wake of this pretty horrible bust. So you, 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 you shouldn't expect the crypto winter to end this year and maybe not next year uh, either. The last thing I'll say is that adoption had stalled in the United States even before it was clear that the bubble was going to burst. Despite Super Bowl ads, there really wasn't a big shift towards Bitcoin or indeed crypto ownership uh, going on. And I think that was interesting. It, it meant that you didn't get the same very, very rapid adoption that, that had driven something like Facebook into a position of extraordinary popularity. Crypto was never as viral as, as Facebook. And Facebook found that it couldn't do crypto. Why not? Because of, of regulatory uh, resistance. All the people who wanted to regulate crypto right out to the margin, have been empowered by the failure of FTX. And the regulators have got the bit between their teeth. The legislators who were enthusiasts have gone very quiet. And for that reason, too, I think the crypto ice age has some way to run. Yeah. Now, if I were to give you the uh, kind of uh, Bitcoin or Bitcoin fundamentalist uh, perspective here. By the way, one should never be a fundamentalist. I'm very, very wary of all fundamentalists because life is really not well understood by fundamentalist ideologies of any kind. So I, 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 you will never get me to say that I'm any kind of fundamentalist, but you go ahead. That is a fundamentalist statement in its own by being against yeah, on, on the contrary, on the contrary. It's the, it's the exact opposite of that. One should be extremely wary. One should recognize that, in fact, the world is much, much messier than any fundamentalist ideology allows. That's, that's what history teaches you. Remember, pure and, and pure and war and peace goes from one ideological fad to the next until he finally realizes that they're all somewhat absurd. But go on. Yeah, but he didn't have Bitcoin at that time. <laughs> well, he, he had gold, at least for some of, uh, of, of the book, he has, he has gold. But I mean, I, 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 would, I would ask the question, if, if it's gold you want, what's wrong with gold? And that's, that's what my old friend Thomas Kaplan, who's been a, a, a consistent gold bug, said to me last year in a conversation I'll always remember. He said, well, you, you know, I agree with you about 
the idea of Bitcoin as an option on digital gold. And it's, it's, it's great for my thesis that gold has a future because, you know, if you, if you want something to be digital gold, then you, you must see something attractive in gold itself. It seems to me not clear at this point that the average American needs digital gold when there's real gold plus the US dollar. The thing that's still true and was true in 2018 is that the use case is well established for Bitcoin in any country that has a highly unstable or authoritarian government with a high probability of of either expropriation or hyperinflation. And, and I think that's the use case for Bitcoin that is well established. What's not clear to me is what, what the use case for Bitcoin is in the United States. Yeah, I mean, if I were to uh, give you the, the case for Bitcoin as opposed to crypto and as opposed to gold, I'll begin with gold. I'd say the ultimate problem with gold is that you can't move it um, more than uh, further away than your arm can take it without government permission. And this is really the issue that, you know, so I lived in Lebanon and the reason that I could escape the hyperinflation and the impact of hyperinflation was because I had access to Bitcoin. Yeah, my condolences. That is is as messed up a country as you could hope to find in 2023. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of cautiously optimistic that uh, they've hit rock bottom and things are going to start turning around now, mainly because the currency is completely destroyed. And the government can no longer pillage the people through the currency because nobody's holding any of the currency anymore. So essentially, the parasites are suffocating and dying, which is always a good thing. But in this kind of setting, you know, gold is not very useful. In the year 2023, if you're a businessman in Lebanon, you can't use gold to trade with your international partners. You can't send gold internationally. There are no gold banks. You, you can't move gold across borders without government permission. And even with government permission, it's extremely slow and extremely expensive. So it's it's useful you know, to put it under your mattress or under your uh, floorboards to keep some there and that you could sell at a point in time when there's a crisis and there's an emergency. But it's basically been neutered monetarily since World War One. I, I argue, because once central banks no longer use gold and once central banks are no longer trading with gold, then its uh, its saleability, its ability to travel across space has been completely compromised. So Bitcoin's value proposition is, on the one hand, which the point I focus on in the Bitcoin standard is the fact that it is even harder than gold. It does gold better than gold and that its current supply growth rate is roughly in the same range as gold is around 1.8% per year, but it's going to drop every two, every four years, it drops by half. So eventually, it's going to drop to zero. So the supply is fixed at 21 million, whereas gold increases at around one and a half to two percent per year every year. So it's better than gold in that regard. And the focus of my first book, the Bitcoin Standard, but in my second book, the, Bit- the Fiat Standard, I focus on the fact that it can move. It's basically gold with wings. So it, it not only can you move it very quickly across borders, but I think the key thing is that you can move it very quickly across borders without having to resort to any of your government's political and uh, banking institutions. And this is really, I think, the, the key value proposition, because, you know, if you're in a place like Lebanon 
and and a place where uh, the currency is having problems or the place that has capital controls. And you know, Britain and the US have had capital controls. They've had devaluation. Perhaps actually one small point, I'll, I'll go back to when we were discussing the period between World War One and Two, and when I was saying that it went downhill. A key thing that, to remember is that the, the devaluation that needed to happen after World War One did happen in the 1930s. You know, the, the dollar was devalued significantly against gold in the 1930s. If that had taken place in 1919 globally, with a pound and with all of these currencies, then we could have been saved an enormous amount of uh, headache. Um, but to go back to Bitcoin, now you can move it around. So if there's a new, another 1971, another 1934, another uh, confiscation of money, if there's a new introduction of, you know, you keep hearing about all these central bank digital currency schemes, Bitcoin is the one thing that can escape that. You know, don't want to sound too much of a fundamentalist, but nothing has as good a chance as Bitcoin uh, does at resisting state capture. In other words, if you find yourself in a situation where central bank digital currencies are imposed, or if there's hyperinflation, or if you're forced to use your local currency and you're forced to use the banks with very strict controls of where you can uh, move your money around, at the end of the day, you just need a computer that can receive one megabyte of data every 10 minutes. And then you can move $10 billion worth of Bitcoin across international borders without anybody even knowing that you have them or that, or that they are yours or that they move from this country to another. So it's, it's a pseudonymous system. And it's got, you know, it's not obviously foolproof. It's not very easy for most people to get this kind of level of censorship resistance, definitely, but it is incomparable to all other alternatives. At the end of the day, it doesn't have to compete against uh, hypothetical um, perfect monies that exist in imagination. It's up against yellow rocks and central bank digital currencies and uh, all kinds of things that have much more pressing shortcomings. So this is, I think, the uh, value proposition for why digital gold over gold because ultimately, uh, you know, in, in the current day and age, nobody buys the gold for the yellow shininess and for the fact that you can drop it on your toe. You buy it for the fact that nobody can print it. Well, Bitcoin recreates that, which is the most important property of gold, recreates it, improves upon it, and gives it wings in order to make it move very quickly. And this, again, brings us to the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. And this is why I think, you know, I'm when you say crypto winter, crypto ice age, I, I find that to be uh, a, good, a good news personally, because I think from, from, from a Bitcoiners perspective, all of this noise around uh, um, decentralized finance and revolutionizing this and that and smart contracts, to be perfectly honest, I view most of that as being just um, excuses for launching digital currencies, excuses for launching securities. Ultimately, it's an unregulated, unregistered securities industry that trades on these um, on this hype. But ultimately, all of the hype does is allows you to launch a security, which is ultimately centralized pretending to be decentralized to get around securities regulation, but it doesn't have the censorship resistance that you're going to need when push comes to shove. In other words, it's like a cardboard cutout uh, of a ship. And it looks like a ship if you don't understand how ships work really well. But you know, when the storm comes and you need to get out um, and, and you need to survive a storm in the ship, the cardboard cutout isn't going to cut it much. So I think, yeah, I... I, I I think there's a strong case that a lot of the crypto industry is not going to recover out of the next year or two. But with Bitcoin, I'll, I'll invite you to consider this. What has happened now is by no means unprecedented. We had a bigger collapse in Bitcoin in 2013. We had a bigger collapse in Bitcoin in 2017, 2018. 
And um, now we still haven't, you know, it was 95%, I think, in 2014. And it's uh, it was about 85% in 2018. And it's now only 77% uh, if, if we're past the bottom. So perhaps uh, the monetary policy change affected it. But you could also make a pretty uh, solid argument that this is just the dynamics of the Bitcoin market itself because of the changes in the um, Bitcoin supply. So every time we get this halving where the new supply uh, drops by half and there's a big bubble after it, there's a big rise in the price and there's a big speculative mania, which leads to a lot of leverage and then it leads to liquidations and then there's a big crash. And I think the key value proposition for Bitcoin, which this crash has not compromised, is the fact that you... Even after the crash, you still are at much higher levels than where you were before it. So, um, you know, in 2019, 2018, the price of Bitcoin spent most of its time under 10,000. So here we are four years later, and it's uh, more than double of what the price was. You know, the average price between 2016 and 2020 was around 8,000 or so. So we had double that price. So the, the main value proposition, which is that the decline in marginal production is going to continue to cause a rise in the price, I think is uncompromised. And so I think, you know, I, I, I can't vouch for anything else in the crypto world. I, um, I wouldn't be too excited about them surviving and weathering the storm, but I think Bitcoin continues to tick along one new block every 10 minutes. Uh, there's nothing, you know, even after the China ban on mining and all of the disruptions that that did to the network, the network's still operating one new block every 10 minutes. And um, as a long-term saving, uh, I think it's still uncompromised. This would be my kind of uh, cheerful story for Bitcoin. Well, I, I don't radically disagree with what you said, but remember, I, I, I was making a point about the United States, not Lebanon. Uh, the use case for Bitcoin in Lebanon is absolutely clear. That can be said of many countries. Uh, in fact, a really large proportion of the world's countries have real issues with currency stability uh, and secure property rights. The, the question really seems to me to be, how far can you go with that narrative in the United States? Because what you started to do, as I've often heard it, it uh, done in the past, was to say, oh, well, some terrible thing is going to happen in the United States that you you really need to be protected against by having uh, digital gold, by having Bitcoin. And I, I don't think that that story is a very compelling one. And I don't think it ever was. You know, when I first uh, talked to enthusiasts like you, which is quite a few years ago now, they would talk about the terrible inflation problem that Bitcoin was there to protect against. And it struck me as strange that, that I was having this conversation when we'd had about 20 years with inflation below the 2% target. Uh, so that use case only started to be credible last year, really. And ironically, as the inflation got worse, so Bitcoin fell in price. So that, that seemed to me to undermine the claim that, that Bitcoin was some kind of inflation hedge. So what else have we got? Well, then there's the argument that the federal government's going to do something drastic like it did in, in the early 1930s and compel everybody uh, to use a central bank digital currency. But I mean, we already have legal tender. Uh, I, can't, I can't pay for things with whatever I like as things stand. 
The issue I think safe is whether you can get the adoption train to run again. It was running very nicely in in 2020, and I th- I think what was going on there was a rising proportion of people were saying, "Well, I need this in my portfolio somewhere," and a n- number of institutions began to get interested. I think that's all stalled because of the the, the crisis that we saw last year. And it's not clear what gets it to go again, because I think adoption was a lot of what was driving the price up. Now, you, you also saw this breakdown in, in the correlations, or rather you arise in the correlations, so that Bitcoin began to trade like essentially a proxy for big tech for a time. And that, that's, that's unappealing. In the end, in a stable country, and the United States, despite the worries that the New York Times is still a pretty stable country. The best protection for your wealth is diversification. I mean, you wouldn't want to be 100% in Bitcoin any more than 100% in anything. So you want a diversified portfolio. And Bitcoin has a place in that portfolio. The question is, what size should it be? And I think the size is, is the issue. I think it currently feels like a quite small percentage of the average high net worth American's portfolio when there are other all kinds of other alternatives that are going to make a lot more money this year. Because in the end, you don't want your portfolio just to be a kind of nest egg for emergencies. You want your portfolio to grow. And I don't think Bitcoin's going to go up in price this year. That's kind of off-putting if, you're, if your alternatives are, well, whatever it is that you want to buy. Uh, so I, I, that's how I think about it. This is why I'm not, not a and you put it correctly, I'm, I'm not a skeptic. I'm not a hater. I'm not Nouriel Rabini. I think Nouriel's been, like a lot of economists, very reluctant to think about this in any rigorous way. And very few economists have said anything interesting about Bitcoin over the last decade. But, but I'm not a kind of passionate believer because I think you shouldn't be a passionate believer in any form of asset, digital or otherwise. You should be a cold and calculating asset allocator who says what is going to be correlated in my portfolio and what is going to be uncorrelated, what is likely to appreciate this year and what is likely to do to go down. Those are the questions to ask, not do I believe, do I have faith? I think those are inappropriate questions for the realm of money. Yeah, um, I think I would I would uh, just argue when you said um, you know the inflation has been under two percent recently. I think that's CPI, and in around this part of the internet, we've got major problems with the way the CPI is calculated, uh, primarily because uh, of the problem that the composition of the basket of goods itself is determined by the changes in prices, and so as the price of desirable goods increases because of inflation, people substitute away from the desirable goods and they um, use inferior goods. And then the basket of goods has more and more inferior goods. And then so the CPI is adjusted in order to fit that. So um, if you look at the price, I think uh, Michael Saylor has made a great contribution to understanding inflation by saying that it's much better to think of it as a vector rather than a metric, a single number. So it's not just one number that is announced every month, which you know, is 3% or 5% or 7%. Inflation is a vector and it affects different goods in a different way. So when you look at the price of digital goods, like say a, um, a megabyte of data, well, that's uh, the inflation rate there in terms of the price change is a decline of 20, 30, 40% per year or something like that. Whereas if you look at the 
price of, say, um, Miami Beach real estate, then it's going up at a much higher rate. And so the rate of monetary inflation, the increase in the supply of money, is reflected in the desirable goods. If you look at the price of real estate, if you look at the price of things that people want, healthcare, Harvard education, these sort of things, they appreciate roughly at similar rates to the increase in the money supply. So the money supply for the US has increased at around 7% over the last 60 years on average. So this is a compound annual growth rate of 7% per year over 60 years. This is a pretty long run average. So CPI has been lower during that time. But if you look at the change in the price of Miami Beach real estate. It is similar to that. In fact, if you look over the last 10 years, I looked at uh, Zillow and at the change in the prices of real estate at the 10 biggest cities of the US. And the average over the last 10 years, up until a few months ago, was 8.5% per year for those 10 cities. So this is really the, you know, if, you, if you're looking to live in a nice place, if you're looking for a nice house, this is the real kind of price inflation rate that you face. It's 8.5% per year. And it is similar to the supply growth rate of the money that you're using. So the value proposition ultimately is that Bitcoin is growing at 1% or 2% currently, and it's going to continue to decline. And it's just simple mathematics. It, it might seem like it's fanaticism and fundamentalism, but as a lot of Bitcoiners like to say, it's just simple math. At the end of the day, this is growing at 1% or 2% per year. Whatever happens, you know, we've seen so much change over the last 14 years, and yet we continue to maintain the supply growth rates. Whereas, you know, national currencies, in the best case scenario, they're going to grow at 7% over the next few decades. So, you know, um, at 7% over 20 years, that's an enormous increase versus what's going to happen with Bitcoin, where there's only so, another... Well, say if this sounds like an argument for uh, investing in real estate, um, because there's an, only so much more Miami they can build and indeed quite a bit of Miami will probably disappear under the waves at some point. I mean, my own view is that one can't cherry pick uh, to determine an inflation rate. There, there, there in the end, is something arbitrary about the basket of, of goods and services in any inflation index, and it changes over time. So when you're making comparisons with the 1970s, you have to remember it's, it's a quite different CPI. But you know, in the end, what's in scarce supply uh, historic housing is my favorite. I mean, historic housing is in fundamentally scarce supply. You can't build 16th century houses in England. There are only the ones that were built then that still stand. And so that's a great asset class uh, to be invested in. Problem is, it's not very liquid. And, you know, you probably don't want to look too closely at your 16th century house's price in the next year or two. Uh, but in the end, I come back to my point that that the rational actor is engaged in constructing a portfolio that will be diversified, will include scarce things in it, uh, but will also have, have liquid things in it. And there's a place for Bitcoin in, in that portfolio. I mean, I, I, I have some, I have a lot less than I had in early last year because it was <laughs> urgently time to rebalance then uh, with the prospects of, of monetary tightening. But there's a place for Bitcoin, uh, but you wouldn't want anybody on this call to think that they should put all their money in Bitcoin, I hope, because that would be terrible financial advice. Uh, the issue, as I said, is what percentage is the average millionaire going to want to hold in, in the form of Bitcoin? The average millionaire in, oh, I don't know, Brazil will want a larger share of their, of their wealth in Bitcoin than the average American millionaire. And I think that's why Bitcoin will be very hard to destroy, even if 
you know, the more militant people at the Bank for International Settlements get their way, there will always be a, a place for, for Bitcoin in those unstable parts of the world where, you know, a military coup or a populist coup might be farcical, but then it might not because it's Brazil as opposed to the United States. Yeah, and I think, you know, in, in the fiat standard, I argue the most effective way governments can destroy Bitcoin, the best chance they have is to go on a gold standard. That would be the way to undermine demand for Bitcoin. I think we can probably rule that out as, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, as, as a scenario for the near, the near future. I mean, I, I think the key question, if one looks ahead 10 years, is do you see the current regime of flexible exchange rates with covert pegs, do you see that regime persisting? And does the dollar remain the anchor currency? I think the answer to that is yes and in yes, because there's no way the Chinese uh, RMB is a contender with capital controls and all the obvious downsides of China's trajectory. So I think we remain in a, in a, a dollar world and the dollar is susceptible to periods of strength like last year and, and and I think it's softening this year. There aren't any very obvious other contenders. So there's a bunch of currencies that are going to be attracted to hold you just because of the sheer volume of trade done in them, euros. People will still want some pounds, some some Swiss francs. But I mean, it, sends, it seems to me that the fiat world isn't going to change that dramatically in the next 10 years. Uh, there isn't going to be a rush to create new monetary unions or new Bretton Woods systems of fixed rates. I don't think that's going to happen. And the reason is that it's pretty convenient to be able to have your currency flexible. So I would say the global environment will not radically alter. I think there'll be some hyperinflation cases, currency collapses. Look at Argentina already at 100% per annum could go higher. And I, I think in those places which are very, very unstable, there will be a considerable appetite for Bitcoin. But my sense is that that's, that's the world for the next 10 years. And the biggest change I would predict would be the disappearance of cash, because I think that's going to happen. Uh, it's already happened to an amazing extent in Sweden and the UK. I was in the UK in December. It is extremely hard to pay for anything with cash in the UK now, including a pint of beer because almost all payments are now done uh, contactless. And the card, credit card companies have done a tremendous job of reinventing and upping their game to make sure that they continue to dominate payments. I would put it to you that the biggest problem for a Bitcoin fundamentalist is just being marginal, just marginalization. That as the world shifts towards electronic payments, with increasingly efficient AI-based platforms to harness the data from every transaction, most people will take the line of least resistance. This was true in China too. It's really simple just to pay for things with, the, with your phone. And that the transaction cost in just in terms of convenience is super low. So most people would just gra gravitate towards centralized AI-driven payment systems and they won't even think about banknotes and coins. They'll soon regard them as comical, the way we regard call boxes. It's like, you know, watch a movie with a call box, and it's like, <laughs> that's how people used to make phone calls. We'll soon watch films where people pay with banknotes, and, and the little kids will go, what the hell? And Bitcoin's danger is being marginal in that world. 
Because in the end, most people don't really care about their privacy and find the convenience of being on an AI-enabled system very attractive. So you'll have a role, it just won't be that central. It'll never be as important as gold. Perhaps, but I think the case here is that you know, the more efficient it becomes, the more liable it is to, be, uh, to, to have inflation and the more it is going to be surveilled. I think this is the key thing that you know, the, 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 the current fiat system is not very efficient at creating inflation to finance the government because they need to create credit and it's not easy to create credit. And when you create too much credit, it leads to a credit collapse. But if you have a physical money printer, that's when you get hyperinflation. So when you move to a digital form of the money printer, then I think we're going to have inflation become more of a problem when you have more efficient forms of digital money. We have your countryman, Alan Farrington, your fellow Scotsman. He's got a question for you. Thanks very much, Dave. Um, and, and great to see you again, Neil. I, I actually I have no idea if you remember this. I'm sure you probably don't. But I saw you speak in our former school. Um, and I shook your hand and it was a, it was a very good talk. That was maybe two, three years ago. It was definitely pre-COVID. So um, it's nice to see you again. It's nice to see you again, albeit virtually. I don't yeah. think we had beards then, or did we? I definitely didn't. I No, I don't think you did either. No. This is my yeah, that's That's image. been a COVID thing. No one tells me to shave anymore, so I just don't. <laughs> um, I, I have, um, I, I had quite a few questions, so I, I wouldn't ask them all now. It depends on how long we have. But there, there was one that followed on from um, something you said uh, one or two answers to go to safe. And I think on, unfortunately this, it is quite a loaded question. I just, I really can't think of a less loaded way to ask it. So it's maybe more like, what is your impression of this rather than putting you too much on the spot? But you talked about kind of coldly and calmly asset allocating. And I just to even preface the question, I, I completely pre- appreciate that. So I'm a professional investor and I think in that capacity, I'm not sure at all how I'd recommend Bitcoin in a portfolio, or maybe if I even would, to be honest, it would depend on, you know, all kinds of preferences of the client. So I, I, I do get where you're coming from with that. But the loaded part is that I, I, I do kind of want to put you on the spot a little and, and just ask, like, what, what do you make of the idea that actually nobody should have to asset allocate? Right. You, you should be able to just save and then forget about it for years, if not decades, if not centuries. And, you know, is, is that worth being passionate about above and beyond what, you know, would be appropriate in coldness and calmness for yearly returns expectations? That's an interesting question, Alan. I think one should discourage things that are easy and encourage things that are hard. Because we, we were given brains, which are quite powerful computers, for a reason. If there were some magical asset that you could just, you could just save and, and put aside with 100% confidence that it would generate a real return of, let's just say 5%, then there'd be a tremendous rush uh, to buy that asset. So you'd almost certainly find that for a period, the returns went sky high because it would be too easy. And I don't think life can be that easy. I think ultimately what's striking to me about the world as I find it is that we quite deliberately do not educate people financially. It's not really part of what people do at high school or college unless they 
choose to study economics of finance, and even if you study economics, I'm not sure how well prepared you really are to manage your own money when you graduate, quite badly in many cases. So people graduate from education with an almost complete ignorance of, of finance, and then they're asked to, to borrow money uh, to pay for housing or, or large uh, capital goods, not understanding really the nature of debt, not understanding the nature of interest rates. Then they're asked to save, not understanding the problems with basic savings account. The world, the world is, is full of sheep being fleeced. And I would rather that we strove after financial literacy and explain to people, look, there's a great deal of uncertainty out there. I can't tell you what the dollar is going to be worth 10 years from now or the British pound for that matter. And I can't tell you where the S&P will land a year from now or even a week from now. That's the reality. There's massive uncertainty because the historical process is completely chaotic. It's a whole bunch of interacting complex systems. Good luck predicting anything. So you better prepare yourself for life under uncertainty. There is not, no such thing as a risk-free asset. Sorry to break the news to you, it doesn't exist. So you must I think, and I try and drum this into my kids, you must act as if that uncertainty is scarily present. And that's when I say, you know, cold asset allocation is the best, the best strategy because you've got to do that. If you get it wrong, because most people do, most people are like, well, I'm just going to buy a house. I'm just going to take a big loan. I'm just going to buy a house. That's my investment strategy. I said this in the Ascent of Money, that most people's investment strategy is to have one long unhedged position on a highly illiquid asset called a house. And that's a terrible strategy. And not surprisingly, it periodically breaks people's hearts, especially when interest rates go up and they'd only borrowed for two years or something like that. So no, I think it's better that we all have to be you know, aware of the uncertainties and trying to be hedged learning how to protect yourself, making sure your balance sheet isn't skewed into one particular category. I'm guilty as hell of having been, I was overweight Bitcoin against my own advice by the end of, of 2020 and slow to rebalance. And that was stupid. That was just stupid because there was a massive, there was a no lovely game to be harvested late 2020. And if you were smart, you took it. So that's the way I think about the world. Don't expect there to be any nice, easy paths to financial security. Those don't you know, exist. This, this is what the gold standard was. You could just save in gold. Like you had to work hard to get your money, but once you got it, it was yours and it stayed yours. It didn't get inflated before the well, money was destroyed. Except in the era of the gold standard, almost nobody had wealth. I mean, this was, a this was a gold standard that allowed you to save in gold if you belonged to the top 1% of the distribution. But the, the other characteristic feature of the gold standard was that most people had no property. They rented their accommodation and that was it. But the reason people have property now is because of the industrialization that has increased living standards, which came about under the gold standard. It was the gold standard that financed industrialization and the massive increase no, the, in living but, standards. But no, 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 no. But the great redistribution which radically altered the distribution of wealth and income happened after the outbreak of World War I. It happened when the gold standard broke down. That's, that's just not, not even debatable. Yeah, but th that was the and point then, and then it went into modern some technology reverse. spread. No, no, it happened because all the wealth of, of the industrial era was destroyed, confiscated, inflated away, or, or taxed as a result of two world wars, a Great Depression, and a lot of inflations. 
the destruction of wealth is not what spread wealth. The destruction of wealth destroyed it. It was industrial production and increased productivity that increased wealth. No, but you have to remember, I'm sorry, but this is economic history, that in the 19th century, your golden age, right up until 1914, the world was highly unequal, like much more unequal than today. The wealth distribution was way more skewed than it is today. What changed that was that from 1914 onwards, the hereditary wealth, the elites of the aristocracy were destroyed. And there was a, a radical redistribution of wealth around the world. Some of it was done by revolution in Russia. Some of it was done by inflation. Some of it was done by taxation. There was a radical re-sorting uh, of, of the world's assets. And by 1950, at the end of all of that, the world is a much, much more equal place than it had been before. In our time, there has been another great flattening or leveling, mainly caused by economic growth in Asia and the advent of the largest middle class in history in China. So we, we are in a very much more egalitarian world than, than we were on the eve of World War I. And that's why one shouldn't fetishize the gold standard, because the gold standard was the monetary system of a highly unequal world in which most wealth was inherited. Yeah, although I, 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 I don't find that very compelling because I think the main driver for the growth in living standards is the increase in productivity. I mean, if you look at the amount of energy that the average person consumes today, it's much, much higher than what it was 150 years ago. That's because of technological improvements, not so much because sure. of inflation. We can talk about technological change if you would like, but it's not related in any way to monetary standards. I know Peter has a question for you. Um, I think the ones in the chat have been addressed. Yeah, my, my question was a quick one on the gold mm. standard as well, because you mentioned there that the gold standard only really became um, formalized in the, in the late 19th century. So the question is, would you, would you say that it's fair to say that there was, uh, there was some kind of gold standard in the two centuries prior uh, to that period? Um, instantiated by the fact that lots of countries had um, a peg to gold and that if you look at exchange rates, they were roughly trading um, at parity in terms of the weight of gold. Uh, if you look at the exchange rates between national currencies, they were roughly trading approximate to their um, weight in gold. Well, if you're talking about, I mean, let's remember, that 17th century is a time of monarchy, monetary anarchy in, in Europe and, and indeed globally, there's, there's nothing resembling a standard. The idea of of defining currency in terms of, of, of gold is, is one that originates in England. It spreads relatively slowly. It's not really universal or even widespread in the 18th century. And, and you still have a sort of variety of different standards in the first half of the 19th century of silver and, and bimetallic. And it's not until really after 1870, that, that there's this great rush to adopt gold. And it's, it's, it's only in the late 19th century that, that Germany and the United States and other countries essentially adopt what is a British standard. We call it a gold standard, but what we really mean is a pound standard. It's essentially the decision that everybody is going to become part of a British-dominated financial system. And, and the reason for doing that is that Britain dominates 
financial uh, markets and dominates commodity markets. And so it's a matter of, of, of convenience, uh, particularly when there's an obvious uh, divergence in, in the supply of silver relative to gold. So I think that I think often people who talk about the gold standard forget that it, it was a relatively short period in which the world more or less accepted that rule. And it was a surprisingly voluntary system. It wasn't as if they ever met and sat down and, and said, we're the gold standard and built a building, which was gold standard, you know, HQ. I mean, it was just the Bank of England, which didn't even have that much gold because it didn't need to have. So the system was, I think, quite contingent. It was obviously controversial in the United States because it implied deflationary policies. And we, we forget that there were downsides to, to gold adoption at a time when, although there had been major gold discoveries, most obviously in South Africa, it was still quite a stretch to get the whole world onto gold, ex-China. The other thing to remember is that the only reason the system was stable, given that there were relatively finite quantities of gold, was uh, the rapid rise of a fractional reserve banking, which created a just structurally relatively easy monetary uh, conditions. So, I mean, I'm probably making this sound a little more ramshackle than it was. But if you read Walter Badgett's great description of how the world works, if, if you've ever read Lombard Street, read, read Lombard Street, Badgett describes how the financial world works. And you realize that at its heart is the Bank of England with this really quite small quantity of gold. And what is making globalization possible, what's making the financial system work is is, is obviously confidence in the Bank of England, the sense that it's a, it, it's a stable anchor for the system, but it's all the other things that are built on around it, the edifices of the bond market, of the stock market, all the, of the, all the different institutions that are essentially operating with, with sterling and sterling-denominated paper claims. So that's, that's, I think that's the reality of the gold standard, which some people are inclined to you know, idealize. I'm not. I think it was a contingent system that only made sense in the context of, of the all the near total British hegemony that had been established in the world uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Yeah, no, we we obviously agree. We think Bitcoin is much better. Well, except that it doesn't have an empire. And the reason that Bitcoin is nowhere close to being gold in the sense of the gold standard is that there is no empire saying this will be our reserve asset. Everything would change if a central bank somewhere in the world said, you know what, we're going to have some Bitcoin, we're going to treat it as a reserve asset. And I know people in, in this part of the world where I live in California who keep hoping that will happen, but it hasn't yet. Yeah, but I mean, I think, you know, uh, gold was money long before the British Empire existed. Gold's been money for thousands of years. So it wasn't the British Empire that made it money. The British Empire recognized monetary reality, but it was just the most advanced financial infrastructure. But you mustn't confuse the gold standard with gold being money. Those are two quite different things. Yeah, but I mean, ultimately, it's gold that is what matters. A gold standard is just the way that it was adapted to technological realities of the 19th century. But in the 21st century, we have different technological realities. Um, all right, Scott has a question. Maybe I think this will be the last one. We'll let you go. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Uh, Scott? Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'm wondering where you see uh, Russia, Ukraine at this point in time, and if uh, you think that this is uh, the end of Russia and where where that stands. Thank you. Well, it's a good place 
for us to end the discussion, because one of the things that the war has made very clear is the extent to which throughout history, war has been culprit number one in inflation episodes. The, the majority of inflation episodes in history are associated with 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 war, and it's not, I think, an accident that that we've seen a spike of inflation. Not that it wasn't already coming; it was already coming from fiscal and monetary policy, but it was clearly driven higher by by this war. This war is not about to end. It's not about to end because both sides think that they can win. Both sides think time is on their side. Ukrainians think time is on their side because ultimately Western sanctions are undermining Russia's economy and each month they get a little bit more fancy hardware from the West. The Russians think that they're going to win because the West will lose interest in Ukraine at some point and uh, Russia is much bigger than Ukraine and its economy has contracted much less than Ukraine. So both sides think time is on their side. That means the war will keep going. It is impossible for me to imagine how a peace deal could be arrived at, given the current positions of, of President Zelensky and Putin. I don't think the war will be waged at the same intensity as we saw last year, simply because the uh, the attrition has been amazingly high. The casualty rates in this war have been much higher than in any war, I think, since the Iran-Iraq war, with really, really large proportions of the original invasion force dead now. And the Ukrainians are probably suffering comparable attrition, particularly when they go on the offensive. So, like the Korean War, this war will have, you know, had it will have one big nasty year of kinetic warfare, followed probably by two years of, of static uh, attrition. This will be the mash phase of the war. And how it ends, I mean, Putin's death would certainly help uh, end the war. I don't think revolution in Russia is terribly likely, but his death would certainly change things. Uh, the West could decide to give Ukraine enough uh, weaponry to win the war. Currently, we give them enough not to lose, but we don't really give them enough to win. I'm not sure that will happen. So my money is on a stalemate that drags on through the year, moves the story from the front page to the inside pages. And, uh, and we, as we often do in these kind of cases, will stop thinking and talking about it so much. At the end, I don't think, I don't think Russia collapses. It's pretty hard to collapse Russia. We, we had a pretty good try uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s, and it's still there. It, it seems as though um, a fiat situation or an easy money situation enables these conflicts to happen at larger magnitudes than they otherwise would in a hard money environment. Do you agree with that? or? Uh, no, because I no. think the scale of war is 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 determined by two things really: one, the technology; two, the political constraints. What's interesting about this war is that it's still quite small by twentieth century standards. I mean, the armies are not large. I mean, invading Ukraine with like one hundred thirty thousand people. I mean, that would just have made Hitler and Stalin laugh. So these are 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 relatively small armies, but with very powerful weapons that are way more lethal and way more accurate than 20th century weapons. So wars can happen regardless of the monetary system. That seems pretty clear. There are plenty of wars in the era of the gold standard, and the existence of the gold standard didn't stop World War I. The truth is that monetary rules get suspended like all rules get suspended in war. 
war is this ultimate emergency. It's the ultimate state of emergency. And, and in, in the state of emergency, you can suspend civil rights. You can just simply suspend individual freedom. The US pretty much did that in, in both world wars. And that's always worth bearing in mind. I'll wrap the discussion by reminding you I'm a historian, not an economist. Economists suffer from the delusion that war is an exogenous shock. They love to call it that. And historians understand that war is endogenous. It is the essence of power. War is the extreme bare exercise of power. And it transcends everything else. Because once you're at war and the blood is flowing, who gives a shit about monetary order? Nobody. That's what you have to remember. And that's what economists often forget. That very... uh very somber note. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. We don't agree on everything, obviously, but I very much enjoy your perspective every time I read or get to talk to you. Agreement is overrated. Uh, Absolutely. Safe a pleasure. And uh, I, it was a pleasure to, to, to exchange ideas with everybody on this, on this call. I wish you a, a good rest of 2023. We're into week two. And uh, the storms are still battering California. So uh, great talking to you all. Bye for now. Cheers. Take care.